Welcome to Accessible Art History, the podcast, the best place for art history lovers or anyone that is curious. My name is Annalisa, and I'm going to share an amazing Roman monument with you today. Just a quick reminder before the episodes get started, all sources and images referenced will be posted on the Accessible Art History blog. You can find that link in the episode description, as well as on Instagram at accessible.art.history. Now that we have that out of the way, let's get started. Welcome back to Accessible Art History, the podcast. Last week, I talked about the Emperor Augustus and his impact on the development of the Roman Empire. He was incredibly important, so I'm going to continue that discussion today with another one of his great achievements, the Arapacus. This, quote, altar of peace symbolized the Pax Romana and the first emperor's achievements. So to learn more, keep on listening. And a special thank you to listener Aleha for sponsoring today's episode. Before I dive into the site, let's refresh our memories of Augustus and his life. As I mentioned in last week's episode, Augustus was the grandnephew and adopted heir of the famous dictator Julius Caesar. After Caesar's assassination, Augustus held power with two other men, Mark Anthony and Lepidus. In 27 BCE, he had defeated his co-rulers in battle and consolidated his power. That year, the Senate proclaimed him the sole ruler of a new empire. But what about the rest of his reign? Well, part of the reason that Augustus was able to hold the immense amount of power was his own personal wealth. The Julio-Claudian line was immensely wealthy and that had been passed down to Augustus upon the death of Julius Caesar. In fact, when there wasn't enough money in the treasury to fund public works projects, Augustus dipped into his personal purse to help cover the cost. In all honesty, it's likely that the Roman Empire wouldn't have been able to grow so quickly without his help. And Augustus knew this. In fact, he made coinage to show his generous contribution so that people wouldn't forget what he had done. In addition to his rule over the political arena, Augustus also served as the head of the Roman religion. You might remember me saying this in an earlier episode of the season, but there was absolutely no separation of church and state in ancient Rome. Essentially, Rome and religion were one and the same. The term for Augustus' role as the head of religion was Pontificus Maximus, or Supreme Pontiff. Starting with his reign, this role was associated with the imperial office. You might be familiar with this title, though in a different context. Today, the Pope, the head of the Catholic Church, still holds the title. Augustus took his role very seriously, and he used it to bolster his image with the people of the empire. This is where the Arapacus comes in. Technically, it's called the Arapacus Auguste, but most people leave off that last part. In English, it means the Augustan Altar of Peace and was meant to reflect the Pax Romana, or Roman peace, that came along with the reign of Augustus. Arapacus was commissioned by the Roman Senate on July 4th, 13 BCE. They wanted to commemorate the emperor's three-year-long campaign in Hispania and Gaul. In fact, we hear about this from Augustus himself in his memoir, the Re Geste Divi Augusti, or Deeds of the Divine Augustus. Quote, when I returned to Rome from Spain and Gaul, having successfully accomplished deeds in those provinces, the Senate voted to consecrate the altar of August peace in the Campus Marches, on which it ordered the magistrates and priests and the Vestal Virgins to offer annual sacrifice. The monument is an open-air altar that is surrounded on all four sides by elaborately decorated walls. Each wall is decorated on both sides, creating different visual programs. It's a beautiful piece, but it's important to remember that this was an actively used religious altar, one that was a part of blood sacrifice ritual. As a visible religious object, the Arapacus had to be situated in just the right way. So it was built in the Campus Martius, the Field of Mars, along the Via Lata, now the Via del Corso. This was also close to other things built under the direction of Augustus, including a large sundial and his mausoleum. By placing yet another structure in the area, the emperor was sending a message. The first was that he was powerful and mighty, and he was able to expand Rome's territorial holdings and make the city bigger and better. 
Secondly, he was placing his mark on the new empire. Memory and religion play a huge role in Roman culture, and Augustus was playing right into that. Next, I'm going to discuss the Altar of Peace, all the amazing carvings on it. But first, let's take a quick When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi there, my name is Annalisa, and I'm the founder of Accessible Art History. My goal is to bring art history content to anyone that is curious. All my platforms can be accessed for free, but there are ways that you can support the cause. If you enjoy this episode, please consider leaving a rate and review on your favorite platform. I also have a Patreon and a Buy Me A Coffee account set up if you feel inclined to support Accessible Art History monetarily. However, I will always work to bring content for free because I believe that education should be accessible for those who want and need it. Thank you for listening, and now let's get back to the episode. Alright, now that we're back, let's talk about altars and their use in the Roman religion. Please note that I will be talking about sacrifice, so if this is not something you're comfortable with, please skip past this section. At its heart, the Arapacus is a religious altar. Yes, it's a beautiful object, and we can admire its artistic elements, but it's important to understand that there's a deep sense of ritual held within the stone. Sacrifice was a common part of Roman religious world. It was a way to show the gods respect and to help build a relationship with them. The idea was that if a person showed respect through sacrifice, the god or goddess could be swayed to help them in a later situation. It's important to note that not all sacrifices would be public like at the Arapacus. People often had small personal altars in their home to conduct sacrifices in private. For public sacrifices, like those that took place at the Arapacus, community leaders, most often priests, but sometimes emperors like Augustus, were the ones in charge of procuring the animal and then performing the sacrifice. In the case of the Arapacus, this was Augustus in his role as the Pontificus Maximus. These ceremonies would often take place at sunrise, as sunset was seen as an inauspicious time. The altar itself is not as decorated as the outer frieze were. Of course, there are some, including images of a procession, but the focus was on the religious moment versus visual beauty. The interior walls are also quite plain compared to the outside walls. Here we see carvings of luscious garlands that hang heavily with fruits and plants, indicating that the Pax Romana had brought abundance to the land. The garlands are suspended on bucranium or ox skulls. This is an ancient symbol of sacrifice and abundance, again going with the theme of the Arapacus. The majority of the decoration on the Arapacus is on the exterior walls. There are multiple different scenes with a plethora of people. I highly recommend checking out the blog because there's a great schematic that labels each section and tons of images. These scenes can be divided into two categories. One on the north wall shows Augustus, his family, lictors, which were attendants and bodyguards, and members of the priestly class walking in procession. Many of the figures are wearing togas and or laurel wreaths, indicating their high status in society. Naturally, we see Augustus and members of his family here. They include Julia, his daughter, or possibly it's his sister, Octavia Minor, his son-in-law Agrippa, Marcella, a daughter of Octavia, and Ulius Antonius, a son of Mark Anthony and Octavia's stepson. There's also a possible representation of Lucius Caesar, a grandson of Augustus. Many of these figures are also seen on the south wall. Although we know that the idea of a strong family was central to Augustus's image, 
This is one of the first times that we see children represented in Roman art. The second section on the east and west walls are more mythological than realistic. There are depictions of the personification of Rome as a goddess aptly named Roma. We also see a goddess of abundance, which has been identified as Pax, the goddess of peace. Though some art historians have theorized that it is a representation of Venus because of Augustus's family connection. Additionally, at the front of the structure, we see depictions of Romulus and Remus' founding myth, but it is poorly preserved, so this is just a speculation. There is a far better preserved image of a sacrifice on the other side. It shows Aeneas sacrificing a sow when he made it to Italy after fleeing the destruction of Rome. The scene was described by Virgil and one that established a tradition of thanksgiving for later Roman rulers. However, recent scholarship suggests that the relief carving actually represents Numa Pompilius, the Roman king associated with peace and the gates of Janus. Without the full Arapacus intact, it's impossible to tell exactly which one it's meant to meet, but some of the fun is coming up with new theories. Today, the Arapacus is in a beautiful, specially built museum along the Tiber River. But how did it get here? Well, fragments were first uncovered in 1568 near the Basilica of San Lorenzo in Lucina. At the time, they were just seen as random Roman relief fragments, and they were given away as gifts. So parts of the Arapacus can actually be found in museums all over the world, including the Villa Medici, the Vatican, the Uffizi, and the Louvre. Fragments continued to pop up here and there, but it wasn't until 1903 that archaeologist Friedrich von Dunn made the connection to the Arapacus that was mentioned in Augustus's memoir. Financing was soon secured, and digs began to find more fragments. Between 1918 and 21, a plan was developed to collect all the pieces in a single display for people to learn from and to honor its original purpose. A few years later, in 1937, the fascist government realized it was the 2000th anniversary of Augustus' birth and that the reconstruction had to begin. A year later, the hastily done reconstruction was placed near the mausoleum of Augustus as Mussolini wanted to, quote, honor ancient Rome. In 2006, a new museum was opened to wash away the memory of the cruel regime. This structure is quite modern, made of glass and steel. Personally, I think it's a great way to honor the space because it harkens back to when the Arapacus was outside for the public to view the sacrifices, but it's undercover and therefore protected for future generations. However, it did cause quite some derision. Many people, including Italian government officials, didn't like how the modern structure contrasted with the more historical buildings or its placement on a busy street. The museum, besides its centerpiece of the Arapacus altar, offers a plethora of information on the Augustine era of the empire, making it a must-see for visitors to Rome. The Arapacus is a crucial study when learning about ancient Rome. Not only is it beautiful because of its relief carvings, but it shows us how the Roman state and its religion were completely intertwined. Make sure to tune in next week when I move forward in history with a discussion of Nero's Domus Aria. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Accessible Art History, the podcast. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at accessible.art.history for updates and keep an eye out on the next episode. They drop every Monday on your favorite podcast platform. If you prefer to listen on YouTube, you can find episodes on there about two weeks after the episodes are posted. Cheers and see you next week.